Chapter Five of The Bride of Lammermoor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Bride of Lammermoor by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Five. Is she a Capulet? Oh, dear Count, my life is my foe's debt. Shakespeare. The Lord Keeper walked for nearly a quarter of a mile in profound silence. His daughter, naturally timid, and bred up in those ideas of filial awe and implicit obedience which were inculcated upon the youth of that period, did not venture to interrupt his meditations. "'Why do you look so pale, Lucy?' said her father, turning suddenly round and breaking silence. According to the ideas of the time, which did not permit a young woman to offer her sentiments on any subject of importance, unless required to do so, Lucy was bound to appear ignorant of the meaning of all that had passed betwixt Alice and her father, and imputed the emotion he had observed to the fear of the wild cattle, which grazed in that part of the extensive chase through which they were now walking. Of these animals, the descendants of the savage herds which anciently roamed free in the Caledonian forests, it was formerly a point of state to preserve a few in the parks of the Scottish nobility. Specimens continued within the memory of man to be kept at least at three houses of distinction, Hamilton namely, Drumlanrig, and Cumbernauld. They had degenerated from the ancient race in size and strength, if we are to judge from the accounts of old chronicles, and from the formidable remains frequently discovered in bogs and morasses when drained and laid open. The bull had lost the shaggy honours of his mane, and the race was small and light-made, in colour a dingy white, or rather a pale yellow, with black horns and hoofs. They retained, however, in some measure, the ferocity of their ancestry, could not be domesticated on account of their antipathy to the human race, and were often dangerous if approached unguardedly, or wantonly disturbed. It was this last reason which has occasioned their being extirpated at the places we have mentioned, where probably they would otherwise have been retained as appropriate inhabitants of a Scottish woodland, and fit tenants for a baronial forest. A few, if I mistake not, are still preserved at Chillingham Castle, in Northumberland, the seat of the Earl of Tankerville. It was to her finding herself in the vicinity of a group of three or four of these animals that Lucy thought proper to impute those signs of fear which had arisen in her countenance for a different reason. For she had been familiarised with the appearance of the wild cattle during her walks in the chase, and it was not then, as it may be now, a necessary part of a young lady's demeanour to indulge in causeless tremors of the nerves. On the present occasion, however, she speedily found cause for real terror. Lucy had scarcely replied to her father in the words we have mentioned, and he was just about to rebuke her supposed timidity, when a bull, stimulated either by the scarlet colour of Miss Ashton's mantle, or by one of those fits of capricious ferocity to which their dispositions are liable, detached himself suddenly from the group which was feeding at the upper extremity of a grassy glade, that seemed to lose itself among the crossing and entangled boughs. The animal approached the intruders on his pasture-ground, at first slowly, pawing the ground with his hoof, bellowing from time to time, and tearing up the sand with his horns, 
as if to lash himself up to rage and violence. The Lord Keeper, who observed the animal's demeanour, was aware that he was about to become mischievous, and, drawing his daughter's arm under his own, began to walk fast along the avenue, in hopes to get out of his sight and his reach. This was the most injudicious course he could have adopted, for, encouraged by the appearance of flight, the bull began to pursue them at full speed. Assailed by a danger so imminent, firmer courage than that of the Lord Keeper might have given way. But paternal tenderness, love strong as death, sustained him. He continued to support and drag onward his daughter, until her fears altogether depriving her of the power of flight, she sunk down by his side, and when he could no longer assist her to escape, he turned round and placed himself betwixt her and the raging animal, which, advancing in full career, its brutal fury enhanced by the rapidity of the pursuit, was now within a few yards of them. The Lord Keeper had no weapons. His age and gravity dispensed even with the usual appendage of a walking-sword, could such appendage have availed him anything. It seemed inevitable that the father or daughter, or both, should have fallen victims to the impending danger, when a shot from the neighbouring thicket arrested the progress of the animal. He was so truly struck between the junction of the spine with the skull, that the wound, which in any other part of his body might scarce have impeded his career, proved instantly fatal. Stumbling forward with a hideous bellow, the progressive force of his previous motion, rather than any operation of his limbs, carried him up to within three yards of the astonished Lord Keeper, where he rolled on the ground, his limbs darkened with the black death-sweat, and quivering with the last convulsions of muscular motion. Lucy lay senseless on the ground, insensible of the wonderful deliverance which she had experienced. Her father was almost equally stupefied. So rapid and unexpected had been the transition from the horrid death, which seemed inevitable, to perfect security. He gazed on the animal, terrible even in death, with a species of mute and confused astonishment, which did not permit him distinctly to understand what had taken place. And so inaccurate was his consciousness of what had passed, that he might have supposed the bull had been arrested in its career by a thunderbolt, had he not observed among the branches of the thicket the figure of a man with a short gun or musketoon in his hand. This instantly recalled him to a sense of their situation. A glance at his daughter reminded him of the necessity of procuring her assistance. He called to the man, whom he concluded to be one of his foresters, to give immediate attention to Miss Ashton, while he himself hastened to call assistance. The huntsman approached them accordingly, and the Lord Keeper saw he was a stranger, but was too much agitated to make any further remarks. In a few hurried words he directed the shooter, as stronger and more active than himself, to carry the young lady to a neighbouring fountain, while he went back to Alice's hut to procure more aid. The man to whose timely interference they had been so much indebted did not seem inclined to leave his good work half finished. He raised Lucy from the ground in his arms, and conveying her through the glades of the forest by paths with which he seemed well acquainted, stopped not until he laid her in safety by the side of a plentiful and pellucid fountain, which had been once covered in, screened, and decorated with architectural ornaments of a Gothic character. But now the vault which had covered it being broken down and riven, and the Gothic font ruined and demolished, the stream burst forth from the recess of the earth in open day, 
and winded its way among the broken sculpture and moss-grown stones which lay in confusion around its source tradition always busy at least in scotland to grace with a legendary tale a spot in itself interesting had ascribed a cause of peculiar veneration to this fountain a beautiful young lady met one of the lords of ravenswood while hunting near this spot and like a second egeria had captivated the affections of the feudal numa they met frequently afterwards and always at sunset the charms of the nymph's mind completing the conquest which her beauty had begun and the mystery of the intrigue adding zest to both she always appeared and disappeared close by the fountain with which therefore her lover judged she had some inexplicable connection she placed certain restrictions on their intercourse which also savoured of mystery they met only once a week friday was the appointed day and she explained to the lord of ravenswood that they were under the necessity of separating so soon as the bell of a chapel belonging to a hermitage in the adjoining wood now long ruinous should toll the hour of vespers in the course of his confession the baron of ravenswood entrusted the hermit with the secret of this singular armour and father zachary drew the necessary and obvious consequence that his patron was enveloped in the toils of satan and in danger of destruction both to body and soul he urged these perils to the baron with all the force of monkish rhetoric and described in the most frightful colours the real character and person of the apparently lovely naiad whom he hesitated not to denounce as a limb of the kingdom of darkness the lover listened with obstinate incredulity and it was not until worn out by the obstinacy of the anchoret that he consented to put the state and condition of his mistress to a certain trial and for that purpose acquiesced in zachary's proposal that on their next interview the vespers bell should be rung half an hour later than usual the hermit maintained and bucklered his opinion by quotations from malleus maleficarum springerus remigius and other learned demonologists that the evil one thus seduced to remain behind the appointed hour would assume her true shape and having appeared to her terrified lover as a fiend of hell would vanish from him in a flash of sulphurous lightning raymond of ravenswood acquiesced in the experiment not incurious concerning the issue though confident it would disappoint the expectations of the hermit at the appointed hour the lovers met and their interview was protracted beyond that at which they usually parted by the delay of the priest to ring his usual curfew no change took place upon the nymph's outward form but as soon as the lengthening shadows made her aware that the usual hour of the vespers chime was past she tore herself from her lover's arms with a shriek of despair bid him adieu for ever and plunging into the fountain disappeared from his eyes the bubbles occasioned by her descent were crimsoned with blood as they arose leading the distracted baron to infer that his ill-judged curiosity had occasioned the death of this interesting and mysterious being the remorse which he felt as well as the recollection of her charms proved the penance of his future life which he lost in the battle of flodden not many months after but in memory of his naiad he had previously ornamented the fountain in which she appeared to reside and secured its waters from profanation or pollution by the small vaulted building of which the fragments still remained scattered around it from this period 
the house of Ravenswood was supposed to have dated its decay. Such was the generally received legend, which some who would seem wiser than the vulgar explained as obscurely intimating the fate of a beautiful maid of plebeian rank, the mistress of this Raymond, whom he slew in a fit of jealousy, and whose blood was mingled with the waters of the locked fountain, as it was commonly called. Others imagined that the tale had a more remote origin in the ancient heathen mythology. All, however, agreed that the spot was fatal to the Ravenswood family, and that to drink of the waters of the well, or even approach its brink, was as ominous to a descendant of that house as for a Graham to wear green, a Bruce to kill a spider, or a St. Clair to cross the Ord on a Monday. It was on this ominous spot that Lucy Ashton first drew breath after her long and almost deadly swoon. Beautiful and pale as the fabulous naiad in the last agony of separation from her lover, she was seated so as to rest with her back against a part of the ruined wall, while her mantle, dripping with the water which her protector had used profusely to recall her senses, clung to her slender and beautifully proportioned form. The first moment of recollection brought to her mind the danger which had overpowered her senses, the next called to remembrance that of her father. She looked around, he was nowhere to be seen. My father, my father, was all that she could ejaculate. Sir William is safe, answered the voice of a stranger, perfectly safe, and will be with you instantly. Are you sure of that? exclaimed Lucy. The bull was close by us. Do not stop me. I must go to seek my father. And she rose with that purpose. But her strength was so much exhausted that far from possessing the power to execute her purpose, she must have fallen against the stone on which she had leant, probably not without sustaining serious injury. The stranger was so near to her that without actually suffering her to fall, he could not avoid catching her in his arms, which, however, he did with a momentary reluctance, very unusual when youth interposes to prevent beauty from danger. It seemed as if her weight, slight as it was, proved too heavy for her young and athletic assistant, for without feeling the temptation of detaining her in his arms, even for a single instant, he again placed her on the stone from which she had risen, and retreating a few steps, repeated hastily, Sir William Ashton is perfectly safe, and will be here instantly. Do not make yourself anxious on his account. Fate has singularly preserved him. You, madam, are exhausted, and must not think of rising until you have some assistance more suitable than mine. Lucy, whose senses were by this time more effectually collected, was naturally led to look at the stranger with attention. There was nothing in his appearance which should have rendered him unwilling to offer his arm to a young lady who required support, or which could have induced her to refuse his assistance, and she could not help thinking, even in that moment, that he seemed cold and reluctant to offer it. A shooting dress of dark cloth intimated the rank of the wearer, though concealed in part by a large and loose cloak of a dark brown colour. A Montero cap and a black feather drooped over the wearer's brow, and partly concealed his features, which, so far as seen, were dark, regular, and full of majestic, though somewhat sullen, expression. Some secret sorrow, or the brooding spirit of some moody passion, had quenched the light and ingenuous vivacity of youth, 
in a countenance singularly fitted to display both, and it was not easy to gaze upon the stranger without a secret impression either of pity or awe, or at least of doubt and curiosity allied to both. The impression which we have necessarily been long in describing, Lucy felt in the glance of a moment, and had no sooner encountered the keen black eyes of the stranger than her own were bent on the ground with a mixture of bashful embarrassment and fear. Yet there was a necessity to speak, or at least she thought so, and in a fluttered accent she began to mention her wonderful escape, in which she was sure that the stranger must, under heaven, have been her father's protector and her own. He seemed to shrink from her expressions of gratitude, while he replied abruptly, I leave you, madam. The deep melody of his voice rendered powerful, but not harsh, by something like a severity of tone. I leave you to the protection of those to whom it is possible you may have this day been a guardian angel. Lucy was surprised at the ambiguity of his language, and with a feeling of artless and unaffected gratitude, began to deprecate the idea of having intended to give her deliverer any offence, as if such a thing had been possible. "'I have been unfortunate,' she said, "'in endeavouring to express my thanks. I am sure it must be so, though I cannot recollect what I said. But would you but stay till my father, till the Lord Keeper, comes? Would you only permit him to pay you his thanks, and to inquire your name?' "'My name is unnecessary.' answered the stranger. Your father, I would rather say, Sir William Ashton, will learn it soon enough, for all the pleasure it is likely to afford him. You mistake him, said Lucy earnestly. He will be grateful for my sake and for his own. You do not know my father, or you are deceiving me with a story of his safety, when he has already fallen a victim to the fury of that animal. When she had caught this idea, she started from the ground and endeavoured to press towards the avenue in which the accident had taken place, while the stranger, though he seemed to hesitate between the desire to assist and the wish to leave her, was obliged, in common humanity, to oppose her both by entreaty and action. "'On the word of a gentleman, madam, I tell you the truth. Your father is in perfect safety. You will expose yourself to injury.' if you venture back where the herd of wild cattle grazed. If you will go, for having once adopted the idea that her father was still in danger, she pressed forward in spite of him. If you will go, accept my arm, though I am not perhaps the person who can with most propriety offer you support. But without heeding his intimation, Lucy took him at his word. Oh, if you be a man, she said, if you be a gentleman, assist me to find my father. You shall not leave me. You must go with me. He is dying, perhaps, while we are talking here. Then, without listening to excuse or apology, and holding fast by the stranger's arm, though unconscious of anything save the support which it gave, and without which she could not have moved, mixed with a vague feeling of preventing his escape from her, she was urging and almost dragging him forward when Sir William Ashton came up, followed by the female attendant of Blind Alice, and by two woodcutters, whom he had suffered from their occupation to his assistance. His joy at seeing his daughter safe overcame the surprise with which he would, at another time, have beheld her hanging as familiarly on the arm of a stranger 
as she might have done upon his own. "'Lucy! My dear Lucy! Are you safe? Are you well?' were the only words that broke from him as he embraced her in ecstasy. "'I am well, sir, thank God, and still more that I see you so. But this gentleman,' she said, quitting his arm and shrinking from him, "'what must he think of me?' And her eloquent blood, flushing over neck and brow, spoke how much she was ashamed of the freedom with which she had craved and even compelled his assistance. "'This gentleman,' said Sir William Ashton, "'will, I trust, not regret the trouble we have given him, "'when I assure him of the gratitude of the Lord Keeper "'for the greatest service which one man ever rendered to another. "'For the life of my child, for my own life, "'which he has saved by his bravery and presence of mind, "'he will, I am sure, permit us to request—' "'Request nothing of me, my lord,' said the stranger, "'in a stern and peremptory tone. "'I am the master of Ravenswood.' There was a dead pause of surprise, not unmixed with less pleasant feelings. The master wrapped himself in his cloak, made a haughty inclination toward Lucy, muttering a few words of courtesy, as indistinctly heard as they seemed to be reluctantly uttered, and turning from them, was immediately lost in the thicket. "'The master of Ravenswood,' said the Lord Keeper, when he had recovered his momentary astonishment. "'Hasten after him! Stop him!' Beg him to speak to me for a single moment. The two foresters accordingly set off in pursuit of the stranger. They speedily reappeared, and in an embarrassed and awkward manner said the gentleman would not return. The Lord Keeper took one of the fellows aside and questioned him more closely what the Master of Ravenswood had said. He just said he wouldn't have come back, said the man with the caution of a prudent Scotchman who cared not to be the bearer of an unpleasant errand. "'He said something more, sir,' said the Lord Keeper, "'and I insist on knowing what it was.' "'Why then, my lord,' said the man, looking down, "'he said, but it would be nae pleasure to your lordship to hear it, "'for I dare say the master meant nae ill.' "'That's none of your concern, sir. "'I desire to hear the very words.' "'Weel, then,' replied the man, "'he said,' "'Tell Sir William Ashton that the next time he and I forgather, "'he will not be half so blithe of our meeting as of our parting.' "'Very well, sir,' said the Lord Keeper. "'I believe he alludes to a wager we have on our hawks. "'It is a matter of no consequence.' "'He turned to his daughter, who was by this time so much recovered "'as to be able to walk home. "'But the effect which the various recollections connected with a scene so terrific made upon a mind which was susceptible in an extreme degree, was more permanent than the injury which her nerves had sustained. Visions of terror, both in sleep and in waking reveries, recalled to her the form of the furious animal, and the dreadful bellow with which he accompanied his career, and it was always the image of the master of Ravenswood, with his native nobleness of countenance and form, that seemed to interpose betwixt her and assured death. It is perhaps at all times dangerous for a young person to suffer recollection, to dwell repeatedly, and with too much complacency, on the same individual. But in Lucy's situation it was almost unavoidable. She had never happened to see a young man of mien and features so romantic and so striking as young Ravenswood. But had she seen a hundred his equals, or his superiors in those particulars, 
no one else would have been linked to her heart by the strong associations of remembered danger and escape, of gratitude, wonder, and curiosity. I say curiosity, for it is likely that the singularly restrained and unaccommodating manners of the master of Ravenswood, so much at variance with the natural expression of his features and grace of his deportment, as the excited wonder by the contrast, had their effect in riveting her attention to the recollections. She knew little of Ravenswood, or the disputes which had existed betwixt her father and his, and perhaps could, in her gentleness of mind, hardly have comprehended the angry and bitter passions which they had engendered. But she knew that he was come of noble stem, was poor though descended from the noble and the wealthy, and she felt that she could sympathise with the feelings of a proud mind, which urged him to recoil from the proffered gratitude of the new proprietors of his father's house and domains. Would he have equally shunned their acknowledgments and avoided their intimacy, had her father's request been urged more mildly, less abruptly, and softened with the grace which women so well know how to throw into their manner, when they mean to mediate betwixt the headlong passions of the ruder sex? This was a perilous question to ask her own mind, perilous both in the idea and in its consequences. Lucy Ashton, in short, was involved in those mazes of the imagination which are most dangerous to the young and the sensitive. Time, it is true, absence, change of scene, and new faces, might probably have destroyed the illusion in her instance, as it has done in many others. But her residence remained solitary, and her mind without those means of dissipating her pleasing visions. This solitude was chiefly owing to the absence of Lady Ashton, who was at this time in Edinburgh, watching the progress of some state intrigue. The Lord Keeper only received society out of policy or ostentation, and was by nature rather reserved and unsociable, and thus no cavalier appeared to rival or to obscure the ideal picture of chivalrous excellence which Lucy had pictured to herself in the Master of Ravenswood. While Lucy indulged in these dreams, she made frequent visits to old blind Alice, hoping it would be easy to lead her to talk on the subject which at present she had so imprudently admitted to occupy so large a portion of her thoughts. But Alice did not in this particular gratify her wishes and expectations. She spoke readily and with pathetic feeling concerning the family in general, but seemed to observe an especial and cautious silence on the subject of the present representative. The little she said of him was not altogether so favourable as Lucy had anticipated. She hinted that he was of a stern and unforgiving character, more ready to resent than to pardon injuries, and Lucy combined with great alarm the hints which she now dropped of these dangerous qualities with Alice's advice to her father, so emphatically given, to beware of Ravenswood. But that very Ravenswood, of whom such unjust suspicions had been entertained, had almost immediately after they had been uttered, confuted them, by saving at once her father's life and her own. Had he nourished such black revenge as Alice's dark hints seemed to indicate, no deed of active guilt was necessary to the full gratification of that evil passion. He needed but to have withheld for an instant his indispensable and effective assistance, and the object of his resentment must have perished, without any direct aggression on his part, by a death equally fearful and certain. 
she conceived therefore that some secret prejudice or the suspicions incident to age and misfortune had led alice to form conclusions injurious to the character and irreconcilable both with the generous conduct and noble features of the master of ravenswood and in this belief lucy reposed her hope and went on weaving her enchanted web of fairy tissue as beautiful and transient as the film of the gossamer when it is pearled with the mountain dew and glimmering to the sun her father in the meanwhile as well as the master of ravenswood were making reflections as frequent though more solid than those of lucy upon the singular event which had taken place the lord keeper's first task when he returned home was to ascertain by medical advice that his daughter has sustained no injury from the dangerous and alarming situation in which she had been placed satisfied on this topic he proceeded to revise the memoranda which he had taken down from the mouth of the person employed to interrupt the funeral service of the late lord ravenswood bred to casuistry and well accustomed to practise the ambidexter ingenuity of the bar it cost him little trouble to soften the features of the tumult which he had been at first so anxious to exaggerate he preached to his colleagues of the privy council the necessity of using conciliatory measures with young men whose blood and temper were hot and their experience of life limited he did not hesitate to attribute some censure to the conduct of the officer as having been unnecessarily irritating these were the contents of his public dispatches the letters which he wrote to those private friends into whose management the matter was likely to fall were of a yet more favourable tenor he represented that lenity in this case would be equally politic and popular whereas considering the high respect with which the rights of internment are regarded in scotland any severity exercised against the master of ravenswood for protecting those of his father from interruption would be on all sides most unfavourably construed and finally assuming the language of a generous and high-spirited man he made it his particular request that this affair should be passed over without severe notice he alluded with delicacy to the predicament in which he himself stood with young ravenswood as having succeeded in the long train of litigation by which the fortunes of that noble house had been so much reduced and confessed it would be most peculiarly acceptable to his own feelings could he find in some sort to counterbalance the disadvantages which he had occasioned the family though only in the prosecution of his just and lawful rights he therefore made it his particular and personal request that the matter should have no farther consequences and insinuated a desire that he himself should have the merit of having put a stop to it by his favourable report and intercession it was particularly remarkable that contrary to his uniform practice he made no special communication to lady ashton upon the subject of the tumult and although he mentioned the alarm which lucy had received from one of the wild cattle yet he gave no detailed account of an incident so interesting and terrible there was much surprise among sir william ashton's political friends and colleagues on receiving letters of a tenor so unexpected on comparing notes together one smiled one put up his eyebrows a third nodded acquiescence in the general wonder and a fourth asked if they were sure these were all the letters the lord keeper had written on the subject it runs strangely in my mind my lords that none of these advices contain the root of the matter 
but no secret letters of a contrary nature had been received, although the question seemed to imply the possibility of their existence. "'Well,' said an old grey-headed statesman, who had contrived, by shifting and trimming, to maintain his post at the steerage through all the changes of course which the vessel had held for thirty years. I thought Sir William would have verified the old Scottish saying, as soon comes a lambskin to market as the old tups. We must please him after his own fashion, said another, though it be an unlooked-for one. A willful man won he his way, answered the old counsellor. "'The keeper will rue this before year and day are out,' said a third. "'The master of Ravenswood is the lad to wind him a pern. "'Why, what would you do, my lords, with the poor young fellow?' said a noble Marquis present. "'The Lord Keeper has got all his estates. He has not a cross to bless himself with.' "'On which the ancient Lord Turntippet replied, "'If he has no gear to fine, he has shins to pine.' And that was our way before the revolution. Luciter cum persona, qui luere non potest cum crumena. Heh, my lords, that's good law Latin. I can see no motive, replied the Marquis, that any noble lord can have for urging this matter farther. Let the Lord Keeper have the power to deal in it as he pleases. Agree, agree, remit to the Lord Keeper, with any other person for fashion's sake. Lord Herpel Hooley, who is bedridden, one to be a quorum. Make your entry in the minutes, Mr. Clark. And now, my lords, there is that young Scattergood, the Laird of Bucklaw's fine, to be disposed upon. I suppose it goes to my Lord Treasurer. Shame be in my meal-poke, then, exclaimed the Lord Turntippet. And your hand eye in the nook of it. I had set that down for a bye-bit between meals for myself. To use one of your favourite saws, my lord replied the Marquis. You are like the miller's dog that licks his lips before the bag is untied. The man is not fined yet. But that costs but twa skirts of a pen, said Lord Turntippet. And surely there is nae noble lord that will presume to say that I, while he complied with all compliances, taken all manner of tests, adjured all that was to be abjured, and swore all that was to be sworn, for these thirty years by past, sticking fast by my duty to the state through good report and bad report, shouldn't I have something now and then to sign my mouth with, after sick druthy work, eh? It would be very unreasonable indeed, my lord, replied the Marquis, had we either thought that your lordship's drought was quenchable, or observed anything stick in your throat that required washing down. And so we close the scene on the Privy Council of that period. End of chapter 5